Hi, and welcome to Episode 7 of the Dancing at the Crossroads podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Ferguson, and I'm here today with the kind of a story I'd love to tell. Mr. Prohibition says John Barleycorn must go. He must fly off, we don't crow, and the other brands we know. Old John has been champion for years beyond a doubt, but now it looks as if they'll count him out. It has gangsters, a ghost, romance, and betrayal. It's also got a great cast of characters. There's the notorious Irish-American gangster Legs Diamond, Daniel Ahern, a Prohibition agent turned bootlegger, and his neighbor and speakeasy owner, George O'Neill. And of course, our favorite stomping ground, the Irish Catskills, that Celtic fiefdom 125 miles north of the Bronx, New York. Our story begins at the stroke of midnight, January 17, 1920. That's when Prohibition, the nationwide ban on booze, went into effect. It's also when the Irish Catskills were just coming into being. It was bad timing for them, but great timing for our story. In those days, many of the Dutch and German farmhouses in New York's Green County had begun taking on borders. They gave city dwellers access to fresh air and, 80 years before it became a thing, actual farm-to-table cuisine. More and more of these visitors were Irish, and soon the guest registries listed as many O'Connells and Flaherty's as Dusseldorf's and Krause's. Irish names began appearing on the property deeds as well. Among them, George O'Neill and Dan O'Hearn, scrappy, second-generation Irish-Americans from New York. In 1920, at the age of 18, George was working as a foreman for the National Biscuit Company, which we'd later call Nabisco. The same year, Dan Ahern found work in a new profession, one that hadn't even existed six months earlier. Federal Prohibition Agent, badge number 7396. He was a G-man. Dan sported a small brown mustache and matching brown hair that he coated with brillantine hair tonic and cropped closely above his ears, which sort of stuck out like the doors on his Model T. George, on the other hand, was fair-haired, wore a gray tweed cap, and cast a stern look that could stop you dead in your tracks. Like Dan, George stood nearly six feet tall, 175 pounds, and blue eyes. It'd be a few years before they crossed paths in the Catskills, though the exact nature of their relationship is a little murky. O'Neill's children say they were partners, Ahern's children say they were rivals, and not on the friendliest of terms. What was clear is that they ended up working for the same boss, but more about that later. George's mother, Minnie Carraher, hailed from County Monaghan, Ireland. She had helped run her mother's boarding house in Greenwich Village before moving her children up to the Catskills in the summer of 1925. There, she opened a boarding house, and George and his four siblings went to work. The O'Hearns, who had emigrated from County Tipperary to Brooklyn in the 1880s, moved across the street. Dan O'Hearn never said why, but at some point he had a change of heart about being a G-man. Perhaps it was because Prohibition agents were paid so little, or perhaps it was because morale was in even shorter supply. In any case, he took a job as a driver, shuttling guests from the Hudson River Ferry in Catskill, New York, to East Durham. Father Bernie Ahern, a Roman Catholic priest, and the second of Dan and Elizabeth Ahern's four children, is glad he did. Uh, was up here, uh, came up to East Durham, uh, and stayed at the Weldon House, 
and he liked it very much. And uh, at the time, he was a provision agent in Brooklyn. Anyhow, while up here in the summertime, he uh, worked at the Weldon House, which is a boarding house that got most of the Irish people from New York City. And he would be the driver who would go down and pick up the guests who were coming. So when they did arrive in uh, Catskill from the, <clears throat> the day ferry from New York, uh, he would hold up a sign, Weldon House, and those who were scheduled to go there would come over. And uh, anyhow, he picks up, uh, one of the ones he picked up was my mom. But while driving had its perks, it must not have paid that well either, for already by 1923, Dan Ahern had opened what was known in those days as a casino, a dance hall that served refreshments. Ahern's casino sat directly across the street from St. Mary's Roman Catholic Church. The casino, a one-story wooden structure, was adorned with Irish and American flags on the outside. Inside, red, white, and blue bunting hung from the rafters, crisscrossing a massive dance floor that measured 75 feet long and 25 feet wide. Here's George O'Neill Jr. recalling how his father described it. And they had two bands in that. They had singing waiters, singing waitresses, uh, the chorus line, dancers, probably comedians, regular floor shell. Now, the Irish and their American-born cousins certainly liked to dance, but they had two other pastimes as well. One was brewed and the other was distilled. Dan wasn't about to let a little thing like prohibition get in the way, though things did get dicey at times. Legs came in uh, and told Dad on the side, did he know that these men were prohibition agents? Uh, his friends who came up from New York <laughs> and set the tavern. And so uh, Dad assured him that they were his friends and they didn't need to be hurt <laughs> in any way. They, they were his friends. How quickly Dan Ahern came under the influence of Legs Diamond is uncertain, but Diamond certainly made himself known. In August 1931, during one of the many trials of Legs Diamond, an Italian innkeeper from East Durham, Arthur Pacini, spoke in broken English how Diamond's crew smashed up barrels of beer he had bought from one of his competitors. Then they placed a gun to his ear and told him that Legs was his new supplier. Pacini decided it was safer to simply go out of business. But Legs Diamond soon found other customers. Among them was George O'Neill, who operated a speakeasy in the basement of a two-story L-shaped building on the corner of Sunside Road and Route 145. The building served at various times as a bowling alley, a gas station, a grocery store, and as an inn. It also served as a cover for a speakeasy that sold beer, homemade Applejack, and anything else O'Neill could get his hands on. Patrons could enter either through a trap door hidden beneath a living room rug upstairs or through a rear door that opened next to Bowery Creek, a narrow winding river that emptied into Catskill Creek nearby. As speakeasies went, it was fairly small. The walls were made of a rough, uncut stone that had been hauled up from the creek bed more than a hundred years earlier. There was one main room and a second small room completely walled off except for a small opening. Through that opening was a device known as a railroad, on which bottles of liquor were sent to the main room, allowing the seller and the buyer to remain unknown to each other. And my father had told me that he somehow came across a, a stamp. He, he had his own stamp, you know, the seal that you break on a bottle of liquor that supposedly tells you it's legitimate stuff. Well, he somehow got a hold of a legitimate federal stamp. 
and they'd make, I guess, gin and Applejack and put the stamp on it. And I think they made more than that. And he would sell it, well, in his own places. And they'd also, he and my Uncle Frank would uh, bring it down to New York City and sell it to the good hotels and, and bars and clubs in, in Manhattan. And he said that uh, the people would break the seal, sample the, the, the liquor, and they'd, most of them would say, ah, you can always tell the real stuff. And my dad would chuckle since they just made it up you know, upstate. In addition to the still he operated on the Hanna farm in the town of Catskill, Diamond is said to have operated another still on the Biondo farm just up the road to Freehold. Now, Legs didn't like competition, and in short order, George O'Neill found himself working for Legs. So I started thinking if uh, Legs Diamond was here and my dad was here, like a quarter, half mile away from each other, no way Legs believed in free enterprise. So he had to have some you know, control over what, what my dad was doing. And one of my older cousins finally admitted, yeah, your, your dad worked for Legs Diamond, and I believe my Uncle Frank did as, as well. Less than a mile up the road, Dan O'Hearn's casino was going full swing. It was the biggest dance hall in the area, and patrons would flock there in the afternoon and evening to dance to Irish and Irish-American tunes. And when there were no dances on, the space doubled as a movie house, showing silent films like Henry Otto's 1920 drama, The Cheater. She cheated him, she cheated herself, she cheated the world. That's why they called her the cheater. A play that will grip any audience. Starring Mae Allison. Dan Hearn found other uses for the casino as well. In June 1923, not long after the casino was first opened, Dan Hearn treated the local school children to a picnic lunch. Some of the fathers in the village were treated to other refreshments. During the Prohibition, uh, the women's... Christian Temperance Union uh, had meetings once a month uh, in, in their church, in the Protestant church. And, uh, and while the meeting was going on, <clears throat> well, their husbands would flock up to dad's place and uh, have a few, a few drinks themselves and scoot home before their wife caught them. <laughs> But it was a regular monthly tradition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All good things must come to an end, though. For Legs, that end came in December 1931 when he was gunned down by his rivals. Jack Legs Diamond, typifying the glorified gangster hero of the late 20s. Arrested 17 times, acquitted 17 times. Suspected of every crime in the book, Legs Diamond led a charmed life temporarily. Returning from Europe in 1930, he became the target of an aroused public and rival gangsters. End of an era was in sight as Diamond is again in custody. It's ironic that peace officers had no part in terminating his career. Released from charges, Diamond was shot up by opposition mobsters in October 1930. Legs survived this shooting, but in Albany, New York, rival gangsters killed him in this rooming house. A public enemy in life, his death started a reform wave that drove gangs into hiding or prison cells. This was Legs Diamond. Then, at 2 o'clock in the morning, Tuesday, August 9, 1932, just eight months after his beer supplier Legs Diamond was assassinated in Albany, 
Dan Ahern's casino burned to the ground. Ahern estimated his loss at $15,000 and said his insurance would cover only a third of that. What money he did recover, he used to replace band members' instruments, which were consumed by flames. Ahern told police he didn't know how the fire started, suggesting maybe it was a careless patron's cigarette. In any case, firemen were unable to save the big casino, but they were able to save St. Mary's Church, which had been threatened by burning embers. Prohibition lasted another 18 months, and there is no record of how Dan Ahern got by in the interim. George O'Neill continued his operation, as did numerous other speakeasies up and down Route 145 and in neighboring villages. But Ahern and O'Neill never lost their thirst for the bar business. After Prohibition, Dan Ahern opened Ahern's Tavern on the same site as the big casino. Under different owners, it later became McSherry's Castle Bar and then the Bunratty, a haven for traditional Irish music. For many years now, it has been occupied by a real estate office. George O'Neill later sold his property to Ed and Marie Mullen, who operated it as part of Mullen's Mountain Spring Hotel. George then bought a well-known tavern called the Hay Press and operated it as O'Neill's Tavern. Its current owners now operate it under the name of the saloon. Oh, and I did promise you a ghost story. Well, years after Legs Diamond's death, stories circulated that his ghost was haunting George O'Neill's old place. Legs was known to stay there from time to time, favoring room 16 on the second floor. Long after the Mullins family bought the property in the late 1940s, leg sightings continued for decades. Each summer, when the Mullins opened the building for guests, they found that room 16, though locked, showed signs of being used. Then, in the winter of 1975 and 1976, the building went up in flames. Though tragic, it was not unusual. Fires claim these old wooden structures every year, though usually during the summer when they're occupied. What was unusual was what happened when workers went to knock down the charred, gutted remains of the building. Here's Marie Mullen in September 1987 on her 80th birthday, tell of the conversation her son Terence had with one of the workers. But we had a man working for Terry had after the house burned down. It was 168 years old. After it burned down, he had a bomb doors to the big hole. So uh, he's sitting on top of the digger, and Terry is talking to him. And he said, Hey, Terrence, tell that man to get down out of there. He was number 16. There's a man walking across there, and he's going to get killed. And Terrence, oh, forget it. He said, That's like Steinman. He walks around here all the time. The man jumped off the digger. He didn't do any more work that day. He, he thought he saw the ghost. Well, that will do it for this episode of the Dancing at the Crossroads podcast. Just a few programming notes before we go. The interview with the late George O'Neill was recorded by Michael Rossi for Narrowback Films. The interview with Father Bernie Ahern and Marie Mullen was recorded by Kevin Ferguson. Periscope Film of Los Angeles provided the archival newsreel audio. Edward Meeker sang the Prohibition-era song, Every Day Will Be Sunday When the Town Goes Dry, recorded in 1919. The Flanagan Brothers played the Carrie Barn Dance. Joe Durain and Jerry O'Brien played the Stack of Barley. Patty Caloran and Paul Ryan played Ballin' Alas, and the Ben Selvin Orchestra played Cheerful Little Earful. And special thanks, as always, to Brendan Dolan, who did some of the original research on Dan Ahern and George O'Neill. That's it for now. Slán